Take your Bibles, please, then, and turn to the book of Joel. The Old Testament prophet Joel is where we are today. Going through the, the Bible in this series of messages, summarizing the books of the Bible, book by book, so that we can together as a congregation get a sense for how the Bible fits together, the, the landscape of the Scripture, if you will. And today, we're in the prophet Joel looking at his writings. And as you find Joel, go to chapter 2, verse 12. That's where we'll start. Here's the key concept today. Totally surrender to the Lord so that you can be fully alive in Him. Surrender to the Lord. That's Joel's message. While you're finding Joel, chapter 2, I'll ask you this question. Have you ever received a warning, a warning that needed to be heeded? Let me tell you about a time when I was Back in Rochester, New York, for a period of uh, a number of years, we pastored a small church in Rochester, New York, and, and there, one evening, I was notified that a tragedy had occurred in a family in the church, and I needed to go visit that family. And so I was driving to find the home of that family, and for those of you who know me, you will not be surprised as I got hopelessly lost. Didn't know where I was driving around, and, and this was the days before GPS, before Google Maps or anything like that, and I was driving around, and as I was getting more and more lost, I was getting more and more late, and so I did what any self-respecting guy would do in that circumstance. I drove faster and faster, <laughs> and pretty soon behind me, I heard the siren, so I had to pull over to the side of the road, and the policeman came to the, my, my window. I rolled down the window. And as he looked in, I saw his eyes glance at the passenger seat next to me where I had my Bible sitting on that seat. And he didn't ask me the questions that I have grown accustomed to over the years. He didn't ask me for my license and registration. He asked me, what do you do for a living? I said, well, I'm a pastor and I'm, I'm uh, on my way to visit this family. And he said, well, you know, you were speeding. I said, I know, officer, I'm very sorry about that. I'll never drive on your streets again. <laughs> you let me out of this. No, I was just contrite as could be. And he goes, okay, well, I'll let you off on a warning this, with a warning this time, but uh, just be careful. And I said, thank you very much, officer. That's great. And, and I don't know in the next moment what came over me, whether it was a, a moment of ministerial bravado or stupidity. But I said, but officer, I can't find this address. And he got in his car and he led me there under the speed limit the whole way. But it's great when it's just a warning. It's great when, when you know, you kind of get off with a warning, and it's better still when you heed the warning, and the consequences never come. Well, in the book of Joel, Joel is saying to the nation Judah, the southern half of Israel, he's saying, this is warning time. You've got to heed the warning, or something bad is coming. And I've chosen uh, chapter 2, verse 12 as a jumping-off point, because I want you to listen to the passion of the warning. He says in verse 12, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. He relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and have pity. Who knows? See, God, Joel is saying, here's the heart of God. God wants to help you. The reason he sends prophets is to warn you so you don't have to experience his punishment. So heed the warning. Now, who was Joel? We don't know much about him at all. His name means the Lord is God. But that's basically all we know. We know that he ministered to the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. 
But we don't know when he spoke these words. There's all kinds of theories, and if you read five different commentaries, you'll get five different answers. But, but I believe this. I believe that when we read the book of Joel, we're actually reading the very earliest writing prophet. I believe that Joel is the first of the prophets who wrote that we now have the works, the works of in our Bible. That means he was about 800 years before Christ. Now, the reason that I, I come to that conclusion is because Joel does not mention any of the enemies that we've grown accustomed talk to talking about through the Old Testament. He doesn't mention Assyria. He doesn't mention Babylon. He doesn't mention the Persians. In other words, it seems to me that this is a time in history when those enemies are yet unknown. Also, Joel doesn't mention a king. Even though there are kings all throughout the history of both kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south, he doesn't name any king. And I think that's a hint for us to place the writing of Joel, the function of Joel, in the time of King Joash. King Joash was a boy king. He, was, he came to the throne when he was just seven years old. And for the first few years of Joash's reign, he was not influencing the government and, the, and the, the, the situation in the land. It was his advisors and priests. And so he doesn't, he doesn't talk about the influence of a king. The king is not, not really all that visible. Also, Amos and Isaiah both quote Joel. This is an influential prophet. And he injects a phrase into the, the, the vernacular of the prophets in the Old Testament that kind of makes its way through the rest of the prophets. It's the phrase, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord in the prophet's vision is not a literal 24-hour day. We encounter this phrase over and over again. But the day of the Lord is a period of time when God steps in and is obviously and powerfully doing something. The day of the Lord is the era of God's manifestation. Most often, the day of the Lord as a phrase is connected to judgment. Not always, but most often. Joel coins that phrase. And in the book of Joel, we actually see three situations which we would call the day of the Lord. There is an immediate day of the Lord that he experiences, and he starts the book with that. Then there's an imminent coming day, and then the future final day. And as he begins his writings, he talks about the immediate day of the Lord, the situation that they are experiencing as a nation right then and there. And it has everything to do with bugs. Bugs. So turn to chapter 1, verse 4, and we'll read about the bugs. He says this, What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, the other locusts have eaten. In other words, the nation is having an infestation of locusts. A locust plague has come upon the land. Now you need to understand that this is tragic for a nation of farmers. They depended on the crops for their own food and for commerce. It was a calamity. It threatened the entire financial structure of the nation. It is disaster when locusts come on farmland. And that's where he begins. That's happening. It's the immediate day of the Lord, this disaster. And so it calls into question our view of disaster. What are we to think about things when disaster happens? Because we live in a world filled with bad news on every side. We live in a world that is twisted. It's not the way that it's meant to be. It's filled with sinners. It's, it's twisted by sin. It's not the way that it will always be. But for now, the world is broken. 
I meet with a men's prayer group every Wednesday morning from 6 o'clock to 7 o'clock in the morning. We meet in the chapel. We circle our chairs and we pray. We pray through those cards you guys turn in on Sunday mornings. We pray for the requests that come up in the group. And this, this is open to any guy who wants to come. We'd love to have you come. Just come when you can. Six o'clock in the morning, you don't have to comb your hair. Just come. And, and, and we pray. And we read on those cards. And we read stories of calamity in families and calamity in communities and in our world. And how do we categorize these events? Is this just a broken planet doing business as usual? Or does God speak to us through circumstances and try to get our attention? See, the book of Job taught us that it is a mistake to assume that every time something bad happens in somebody's life, it's God punishing them for a sin. Job teaches us that life is not that simple and the world is more complex. Everyone suffers sooner or later. The operating system of our planet is not what it's meant to be. But when we come to the message of Joel, what we see is the other side of that coin. We see that there are some times when we are meant to look past the calamity, to look past the disaster and ask, God, is there a message here? Are you saying something to me? Joel is saying to his people, God is getting your attention with these bugs. Listen. So what about in our situations of struggle, when bad things happen? Is God manipulating that to get our attention? I think we can say yes when three criteria are met. Number one, when the disaster is of an unusual nature and unusually intense. The reality is bugs are a fact of life. But an invasion, infestation of locusts that decimate the crops, that's going to get your attention. That's unusual. Secondly, if it corresponds to the Word of God, Moses in Deuteronomy 28 outlined some of the things that God would do when His people would stray to get their attention, to turn their hearts back to Him. Locusts was one of those things. And thirdly, the discernment of God's people. I believe when God uses circumstances to get our attention, to warn us, He tells His messengers about it, and He causes them to speak out. But for all of us, it means that we must not close off our minds or hearts to the possibility that in circumstances, God is getting our attention so that we might turn from a harmful future. Now, having said all that, we here in the state of California are experiencing an unprecedented drought in severity and in length. In Deuteronomy 28, the very same passage where Moses, Moses predicts locusts, he also says drought is one of the things God will use to get your attention, to turn your heart to Him. He specifically says this, when you are veering away from your walk with God, the skies will be as brass and the earth as iron. So what should we do? I'm going to tell you this, it is good to pray for rain. It is better to pray for repentance. Because God uses circumstances to say, wake up, look to me. And God is saying that through the prophet Joel. He says, respond in repentance, turn to the Lord. And if you don't, a worse thing can happen. Go to chapter 1, verse 15. The prophet says, alas for that day. For the day of the Lord is near. It will come like a destruction from the Almighty. In other words, he's saying there's a coming a day of the Lord, an imminent day of the Lord. If you think bugs are bad, armies are worse. The day of the Lord is coming. Maybe you think that's harsh to a nation of farmers who are struggling to keep their crops. 
Maybe you think, where's the love? Where, where's the encouragement? Where's the soothing here? The Bible tells us that it is neither cruel nor manipulative to enter a person's sorrow and turn their thoughts to larger issues. There is a larger issue at stake, says Joel. This is a warning. In the warning time, you can still change. Repent now before the next imminent day of the Lord comes. And it is not bugs. Chapter 2 describes it. Verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large army comes, such as never was of old or ever will be in ages to come. The image goes from bugs to armies. It will be a bad future when this happens, Joel is saying. But you can avoid it. You can learn the lesson in the warning times. You can stop this. And this brings us to the verses where we started, verse 12 of chapter 2. This is what you must do. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. He relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and have pity. Now is the time for repentance. Now is the time that, to, to capture God's mercy. He wants to show you mercy. Now is the time. But Joel knows his people. He understands that their tendency is to have false repentance. Their tendency is to make a big show of their sorrow, rending their garments, weeping and wailing. They practice putting dirt on their heads and they, letting everybody see that I'm sorry, something's bad in my life, and I'm sorry for it. But he knows that so often that showiness only goes skin deep. That's false repentance. False repentance is when the sin is secretly cherished. That what we're sorry for is getting caught. Or we're sorry for the consequences that we know will come. For that we're sorry. But when the consequences pass, we're right back at it. Right back where we were. True repentance sees the damage that sin does. True repentance understands that sin severs the relationship with our Heavenly Father and with one another. True repentance labels sin for what it is. It's not a fun and flirty thing that I do in the flesh. This is spiritual cancer. It's killing me. It's killing me from the inside out. It's eating me away spiritually. True repentance understands that and recognizes it's really not the consequences so much as the issue I must deal with. I must be right with God. True repentance changes you from the inside out. It doesn't just put a, a veneer of, of sorrow on top. And when that happens, things will change. He says, listen to what it will be like if you would just repent. Chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord will be jealous for his land and take pity on his people. The Lord will re reply to them, I am sending you grain and new wine and oil, enough to satisfy you fully, never again to make you an object of scorn to the nations. True repentance, if you read on, it says it's going to be a time of victory for you. True repentance brings protection for you. It brings abundance to you because I want to bless you, says God. I want to bless you. But the reality is that history shows that their repentance is just skin deep. It's up and down for a while, but we, we went through the history books, we know. Eventually, the nation is dragged away in captivity. Joel doesn't dwell on that. He's way before that as he's speaking, but then he turns the page and looks 
to the final day of the Lord. And it's not a day of punishment, it's a day of blessing. He turns his prophetic gaze in verse 28 of chapter 2. I'd like you to see that. He reads this, he says this, And afterward I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. The phrase afterwards, or some of your Bibles might say, after these things, that is a turning point in Joel's prophecy. It's meant to alert us that now he's thinking long-term. Now he's thinking beyond the immediate situation or the imminent situation to the final situation, the far future for Joel. And he says, in the day of the Lord that's coming, the Spirit of the Lord will be poured out on His people. That day will be a day of blessing, not cursing, a day of rejoicing, a day of forgiveness and help. And it will involve the pouring out of the Spirit. Let me read it again. I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Does that sound familiar to you? On the day of Pentecost, Peter stepped into a crowd that was confused about what they were seeing. There were men who were speaking languages that they never studied, the languages of those who were visiting Jerusalem on that day. They were hearing them in their own tongue, and they were wondering, how can this be? What's happening? And Peter stood up and said, this should not surprise you. This should not confuse you, because this is what Joel was prophesying. In fact, here are the words of Peter from Acts chapter 2. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved." Peter is quoting Joel. Peter stands in Pentecost in the temple courts and says, this is the day that Joel saw back in those days and prophesied about. It's happening right now. Now, there's a few things we learn from Peter's words. Number one, Peter assumes that what the prophet says, God is saying. He takes Joel's words and he says, God has said. The Bible is inspired, is the inspired word of God. It is the authoritative word of God. When the prophets speak, God is speaking. And what God says he will do, he will do. In that day, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Secondly, Peter says, he changes after these things to in the last days. Hugely important for us to understand that right there, we're getting a Holy Spirit-inspired commentary on the Old Testament. The Holy Holy Spirit is saying through Peter, this is what Joel was saying. He was saying when he said, after these things, he was crossing the bridge into the last days. So it shows us that Peter says the last days, from God's point of view, started at Pentecost. The The countdown clock for the last days began the day of Pentecost. And we see the initial elements of of that prophecy happen right there as the Spirit is poured out among His people. The end-era prophecies of the heavenly signs that Joel talks about and Peter quotes, we have yet to see. But be sure that it's coming because what God says He will do. Jesus confirmed all of this. 
In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus looks, Jesus looks forward to the exact same thing that Joel and Peter talk about, and he says, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the, sun, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. You see, these three passages are meant to be considered together. They show us the obvious manifestations of God when Jesus returns in glory. There will be heavenly signs that are almost beyond description. But that day of the Lord is one of mercy and one of, of forgiveness and glory. Mercy for those who are the children of God. I hope you didn't let go of Joel chapter 2 because verse 32 of Joel chapter 2 is exactly what Peter says in Acts chapter 2. He says, And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. Now, if we only had Joel, you might think, well, he means everyone in Israel because his prophecy is all about God's call to repentance from the nation Israel. Maybe, maybe everyone in Israel. But once again, the Bible gives us Holy Spirit-inspired commentary on what he really meant. This time, not from Peter, but from the pen of the Apostle Paul. Paul writes to the Romans, and as he writes to the Romans, he quotes Joel. He says in chapter 10, For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, he's saying this, In the warning time, before the end, in the warning time, this salvation is for everybody, and everybody means anybody. It doesn't matter your language. It doesn't matter your ethnic group. It doesn't matter your color. It doesn't matter. You call on the name of the Lord, and you will be saved. And in the warning time, it's time to do it. Because though the final day of the Lord will be blessing for those who are His, the final day of the Lord will be judgment for His enemies. Joel chapter 3 Verse 12, please listen for the connection between his words and the words of Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 12, let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. It strikes me that when we quoted Matthew 24 from Jesus' lips, he said, when the sign of the Son of Man is seen in the heavens, the nations will what? Mourn. They will mourn. Why? Warning time is over. Judgment has come. Here, in the, in, the, in the words here, the nations will be roused to the valley of Jehoshaphat. The nations here is a, is a phrase. It's just a, a title for those who have not turned to the Lord Jesus, who have not experienced his, forgiven, his forgiveness. And understand with me, when he says, I will take them to the valley of Jehoshaphat, there is no valley of Jehoshaphat. It is not, there's not a geographical place with that name. Jehoshaphat means the Lord judges. In other words, this is what's going to happen here. In that day, for the enemies of the Lord, the Lord judges. And so, there's a picture of that final day. And when Joel signs off his prophecy, the last two verses of his written word, he ends with a promise. A promise for those who know the Lord and see him. He says, Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem through all generations. Their blood guilt, which I have not pardoned, I will pardon. And the Lord dwells in Zion. We live that and we ask, we leave that and we ask, it, 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 was this actually going to take place? Is Jesus actually going to rule in Jerusalem? And I say, everything that the Lord says he will do. Peter understood that Pentecost was the beginning, 
Pentecost was Joel's prophecy happening right in front of his eyes and it set off a, 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 a sweep of events that is taking us all to the very final era of the last days. I believe there is coming for us ahead a radical turning of ethnic Israel to the one true Messiah. And I believe that there will be a day when we Gentile believers will celebrate the fact that we are grafted in by faith to the people of God. But it's all by faith in Jesus. He's the only way. So until that day comes, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We trust that God has the future well in hand. And we know that one day God will rule in Jerusalem. Jesus will sit on the throne of the new Jerusalem forever and ever. And so, as we leave Joel, we, we ask ourselves some questions about what happens when life throws you a curve? What happens when we're in the warning times and we're sensing God is speaking through circumstances? Three things you must ask. God, is this you? Are you trying to tell me something? You must mourn. If it is sadness, Mourning is called for. The Bible is not a stiff upper, upper lip book. The Bible is an honest book. It's honest with your emotions. And we can honestly say, I'm struggling through this. Joel said that. Thirdly, we must fast and pray. Verse 114, fast and pray to hear from the Lord your God. Fasting is giving up something to put prayer for, to God in that place. Usually it's food. But if you give up food and you don't pray, you're just on a diet. Fast and pray that God will direct you and speak to you and show you what must change in order not to experience the imminent day of the Lord. God warns us because He loves us. Would you stand with me for a closing prayer? And as you stand, I'm going to ask you to do something. Just take a moment and pause. And would you silently ask yourself this question? Make it a prayer to the Lord. Lord, is there something in my life that is a warning sign? Are you trying to get my attention? 